0: That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. In 1992, 47 year old David Walsh was at the end of his rope. For years, he had searched for precious stones in the Canadian wilderness. While others got rich from diamonds and oil, Walsh always came up empty. His company, Brie X Minerals Limited, was on the verge of ruin. Its stock was worth pennies. He and his wife had declared bankruptcy. In desperation, Walsh decided he'd take what he had left and wager on one last big stake. Walsh ventured all the way to the swampy jungles of Borneo in search of gold or at least the man who could find it for him. After two weeks of struggling, he came across an old acquaintance, a gruff, adventurous geologist named John Felderhoff. Felderhoff told Walsh not to worry, there was gold right under their feet, maybe one of the largest deposits in the world. All they had to do was dig it out. Four years later, Brie X was worth billions. But not a single nugget of gold had been found. Welcome to Con Artists, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. Every week, we peel back the layers of history's greatest deceptions and tell the stories of the hustlers, swindlers, and fraudsters that orchestrated them. I'll dive into their psychology, break down their tricks, and explain why anyone might fall for a con. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Con Artists for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. Today, we're beginning the story of Brie X, a Canadian company responsible for the largest, most elaborate mining fraud in history. This week, we'll explore the humble beginnings of Brie X to its supposed discovery of a major gold deposit in the jungles of Borneo. Next week, we'll hear about the downfall of Brie X, including the mysterious death of one of the chief architects of its gold scam. We will also try to understand how many supposed experts were deceived by Brie X. There is an old joke on the Vancouver Stock Exchange. A mine is best defined as a hole in the ground with a liar at the top of it. In the case of Brie X, there were three liars responsible for the scam. We don't know which of the three first came up with the lie. We don't know who knew about it from the get-go and who learned about it later on. It's possible, though unlikely, that at least one of them really did believe they'd struck gold. Whatever the case, we know that the full story starts with Bree X's foundation, by a Canadian stockbroker with little success and fewer scruples. David Walsh was born in 1945 in a wealthy suburb in the English-speaking section of Montreal. His father was a stockbroker. His father's father was a stockbroker, so Walsh, too, became a stockbroker. At age 29, he was named vice president of Montreal-based brokerage firm Midland Doherty, the youngest in the firm's history. But the sheen on the Golden Boy was quickly tarnished. In 1975, about a year after his promotion, the firm discovered that Walsh had sold stolen securities certificates. Walsh managed to avoid prosecution, but he was strongly encouraged to find new employment. Walsh bounced around various investment firms before moving to Calgary in 1982 at the age of 37, where he tried his hand at mining. Almost a quarter of Canada's economy is based on mineral products, from crude petroleum to aluminium and gold. The exploitation of natural resources is a tried and true path to wealth for the adventurous and well-connected. Walsh, however, was not so fortunate. He took a stab at oil and gas but floundered. So, in 1984, he turned to precious minerals, hoping to uncover a trove that would make him rich. But again, he fared poorly. Just over five years later, major diamond finds were being announced in Canada's Northwest Territories. Walsh founded Brie X Minerals Limited to cash in on the diamond rush. However, Walsh and X also came up empty-handed. Company stock traded at a pathetic 4 cents a share. The situation was so bleak that in 1991, Walsh opened the company's annual report with the line, Yes, we are still in business. X continued to limp along, but by the next year, Walsh and his wife were forced to declare bankruptcy jettisoning tens of thousands of dollars in credit card debt. At 47 years old, David Walsh was a failure. He had failed at stocks and he failed at oil, gas and diamonds. Past middle age, his legacy was one of roguery and bankruptcy. Grasping for something, anything that could reverse his fortunes, Walsh gambled his remaining capital on one last roll of the dice. Walsh heard rumors of gold deposits deep in the steaming tropical jungle of Kalimantan, Indonesia. There's nothing quite like gold. Its history as the ultimate commodity stretches back into the earliest days of human civilization. The substance has an inherent, almost primal magnetism. Empires have been destroyed in its pursuit. Just ask Hernan Cortez. Part of that appeal is due to the metal itself, its inherent beauty, its malleability, its resistance to degradation. It is THE precious metal. But there's much more to the attraction of gold than its physical properties. Adventuring into no man's land, conquering nature, finding treasure. This was precisely the kind of thrill Walsh was hoping for. Not merely to get rich, but to strike it rich. The dream of finding that big gold strike led Walsh to Indonesia and to John Felderhoff. Born in Holland in 1940, Felderhoff emigrated to Canada in his teens. In 1968, his co-discovery of one of the world's largest silver and gold mines in Papua New Guinea sealed his reputation as a trustworthy, knowledgeable prospector. He was like a Dutch King Midas. Felderhoff was also something of an Indiana Jones figure, a rugged adventurer who plunged into dark jungles searching for hidden treasure. The Dutch-Canadian geologist boasted of surviving no less than 14 bouts of malaria. Reporter Richard Behar described him as having a shifty mug, a gruff manner and a hideous laugh. Walsh first met Felderhoff in the early 80s through a connection with an Australian mining company. Thanks to Felderhoff's history as a proven gold finder, Walsh now saw him as the key to saving Bree-X. Walsh was thrilled to reunite with Felderhoff in the Indonesian jungle, and even more so when the geologists shared some much-needed good news. Felderhoff told Walsh that they were sitting on a major gold deposit, which, in his mind, might be one of the largest in the world. He speculated the site could contain up to 1 million ounces of gold, worth about 600 million dollars. They just had to find it first. The 475,000 acre site nestled in the heart of the jungle of Kalimantan, Indonesia was called Busang. Rumours of locals panning for gold in the nearby river had first attracted Felderhof to the site. However, previous mining companies had already drilled dozens of holes into Busang and found nothing. Felderhof, however, was certain he could find gold where the others had failed. And he managed to convince Walsh of it too. Walsh purchased the Busang land with the last of his company's dwindling resources. The cost? was $80,000. In May of 1993, Walsh bet everything he had left that they would strike it rich in the jungle. To cement their partnership, Walsh named Felderhof the vice president of BreeX. x Felderhof then brought in a Filipino geologist named Michael de Guzman, completing the bree x triumvirate. Guzman was an old friend of Felderhof who boasted an IQ upwards of 150 and a history of hiking through miles upon miles of unforgiving jungle in search of rich ores. He was considered an expert in diatremes, concave bodies of rock often formed by volcanic eruptions. Diatremes can plunge deep into the earth and are associated with deposits of valuable minerals like diamonds or gold. After starting work at Busang, Guzman insisted that the site was a diatreme filled with gold. Felderhof confirmed Guzman's assessment. He told investors that a volcano had collapsed in on itself at the site, with the resulting heat and pressure creating a major vein of gold. Other mining companies had been unable to find such a vein at Bussang, or any gold at all for that matter, When questioned about this, Felderhoff insisted that the other companies had drilled in the wrong places, or not deeply enough, or that they used a wet drilling method that washed away what gold they did dig up. Guzman, with his allegedly genius IQ, must have thought himself superior to those other geologists and their bumbling corporate employers he believed only a man of his staggering intellect could possibly find the hidden treasure of Bu Sang. Or perhaps he had planned the scam from the start. The truth is, we don't know exactly who came up with the scheme. Perhaps Guzman did it on his own. Perhaps Felderhoff encouraged Guzman to do it, or at least tacitly approved the fraud. Perhaps David Walsh was the mastermind, Or perhaps he was just the first person to be suckered by Felderhof, or Guzman, or both. Often, when it comes to mining for precious metals, the line between an intentional con and overly optimistic salesmanship is blurry. Even well-meaning prospectors eager for investor capital can convince themselves that the mother load is waiting just a few meters deeper. This is not unlike a gambler believing that the next hand, the next roll of dice, will be the big one. While David Walsh was not a pathological gambler, as far as we know, it's easy to see how his actions mirror this mindset. According to Dr. Timothy Fong of the UCLA Neuropsychiatric Hospital, a gambling addiction can lead to an increase toward deceptive tendencies and impaired decision-making. While that might go a long way to explaining the Bree-X scandal, we should not jump to the conclusion that Walsh was motivated by a compulsion. Most likely, he just felt he knew the mining industry and he wanted to get rich. It's not entirely unfeasible that Walsh, maybe even Felderhoff, really believed in the potential of Busang. At least at first. Maybe they wanted it to be true so badly that they just couldn't accept that it was all an illusion. Coming up, Brie X tampers with the samples collected at Busan and fools some of the industry's leading experts using the oldest trick in the book. Now, back to the story. In 1993, David Walsh, the 48-year-old CEO of Canadian mining company Brie-X Minerals, purchased a site in the Indonesian jungle called Busang. Briex and its founder were running on fumes. If they didn't find gold soon, they'd be out of business. But Walsh had been reassured by his partners, geologists John Felderhoff and Michael de Guzman, that Busang was a sure bet. To prove Bu Sang's potential, Guzman used core drilling, a method where samples are brought up from beneath the earth in a hollow tube and examined for mineral content. Guzman at first appeared to be following some of the industry standard procedures for taking samples. For instance, he sealed the samples in tamper-proof bags and logged the time and place at which they were collected. However, Core drill samples are typically split down their length so that a second set of tests can be performed later to verify the initial tests. Crucially, Guzman did not split his samples. This could have been simple negligence, or a way for Guzman to cover his tracks by reducing the amount of future testing that could be done on his samples. Whether the decision not to split the samples was part of a larger scheme or not, The results Guzman provided convinced Walsh and Felderhoff that Busang was indeed a valuable diatreme. Surprisingly, this was not difficult to do. Not much gold needs to be found in a mining analysis, usually called an assay. A few micrograms in a sample will bring back an assay report of 5 grams per ton. In other words, a sprinkling of dust can suggest a mountain of gold. Once the rock samples from Busang were crushed and heated, the resulting data showed very high percentages of gold. Walsh was relieved. He had finally found the gold strike that he so desperately needed. But he couldn't celebrate just yet. All the gold in the world was worthless to him if it was trapped underground. Walsh still needed to actually mine the gold, and for that, he needed to generate some capital. To that end, Brie X gave fundraising presentations to prospective investors. They showed off Guzman's sensational data, pointing to microscopic photographs taken of the crushed rock and the unmistakable sheen of gold. According to Brie X, Busang's potential was virtually limitless. But there was something suspicious about the Busang samples the underground ore structure BreX x had discovered was too neat. This is typically an indication that the samples have been tampered with. According to economist Stan Davies, if you're falsifying a sample, you need to take huge care to construct a consistent model of the ore structure in the ground. It wouldn't do to have huge concentrations of gold in one drill hole and nothing at all in one two meters away. Guzman, or whomever was behind the scam, had gone to great lengths to ensure a consistent model suggesting a large gold deposit. But they took it too far. Since the samples were supposed to be bagged as they came out of the ground, there should have been an element of randomness to them. However, the Busang model was unnaturally perfect. And a knowledgeable geologist might have noticed another curious thing about the brie x samples. A second red flag. The tiny gold nuggets present in the crushed rock were smooth. But gold found in rock samples is never smooth. Smooth gold nuggets only occur in nature if they've been eroded by running water. This is called alluvial gold, and it's the kind of gold you would find by panning in a river. Locals panning gold from a river was what initially drew Felderhof to Busang. If these locals had found gold in the nearby river, Felderhof could have easily added some to the drill core samples. This is called salting. Salting a sample is a very simple and very old type of mining fraud. Sprinkle a little gold dust into a site sample before you send it off to the lab and the subsequent results will report that the site is a major gold deposit. The usual way to salt a mine is to take a shotgun cartridge, remove the shot and replace it with gold dust. Go to your mine and blast the golden cartridge at some rocks. Collect those rocks and send them off to be assayed. The lab will report that your samples contain flecks of gold. Take that official report to prospective investors and explain how you just need some startup capital to get the mine up and running and voila, you're now a millionaire. All because you shot a gun at some rocks. Considering the eventual enormity of the Briex scandal, their method of salting was no more sophisticated than shooting at rocks, but the effect was the same foreign gold was introduced into the samples after they were taken from the ground but before they reached the lab for testing allegedly some of the salting was done with shavings from a wedding band and if this occurred there's a good chance it was michael de guzman's he kept four wives simultaneously so he certainly had reason to wear one and as the one collecting the samples Guzman had the most opportunities to start the scam. Whatever the source of the sample's gold, it certainly did not come from the ground beneath Busang. However, experts failed to examine the suspicious nature of the brie x samples. It was a massive oversight and one with little explanation. Yet, it's possible this was the effect of a psychological phenomenon known as authority bias. According to Tomas Hinesor, a professor at the Collegio Carlo Alberto, the authority bias suggests that those in positions of authority are perceived to make better decisions and fewer mistakes. For example, when a prominent geologist states positively that a site contains a substantial deposit of gold, we're likely to take their word for it. They are, after all, credible experts with years of advanced study. Usually, trusting these people isn't a problem. However, once an authority on a subject makes a mistake, those trusting in his or her expertise can help compound the error. This was the case with Felderhof and Guzman. They gave their expert opinion that Busang was a hugely profitable gold mine and investors were all too eager to believe them. The assay results for Busang, as circulated by Bree-X were absolutely electrifying. Bree-X's initial estimate for the site was 2.7 million ounces of gold. But as the hysteria around the Busang mine spread like an inferno, the estimated size of the gold deposit skyrocketed. Like a Looney Tunes snowball rolling downhill, the reputed worth of the Busang deposit grew comically larger until it flattened everything in its path. 2.7 million ounces of gold became 17 million, then 30 million, then 45 million, then 71 million ounces, depending on whom at Bree X you asked. All in all, the site's total worth was estimated at some 25 billion dollars. Officially, Bree-X kept the total estimate for gold at Busang at around 30 million ounces. For comparison, between 1848 and 1853, during the frenzy of the California gold rush, perhaps only a mere 10 to 12 million ounces of gold were extracted in total. Even the early 30 million ounce estimate would have made Busan one of the top four largest gold deposits in the world. The cherry on top was that, due to local conditions, the cost of extracting the gold was predicted to be only half of the world average for similar operations. If it all sounded too good to be true, it was. But curiously. No one reacted to the Busang claims with skepticism. The wild speculation and overly optimistic, nearly unbelievable exaggeration which so epitomized X went unchallenged from the very beginning. In 1994, when Felderhoff and Guzman were first drilling and testing for gold, their assay reports drove stock prices from pennies to $1.45 a share. In October 1995, David Walsh told Bre-X shareholders that they had uncovered an enormous gold deposit, hinting at 45 million ounces. First Marathon Securities, one of Canada's largest brokerage firms, sent an analyst of their own and reported, among gold exploration companies, Bre-X remains our favorite. Shortly after Walsh's 1995 report of 30 to 45 million ounces, another mining analyst visited Busang and reported, I know for a fact there's more gold. I've seen it. BreeX has made one of the great gold discoveries of our generation. Breex had everyone in the mining industry convinced that they were sitting on the most massive gold deposit of all time. Naturally, this attracted a lot of attention. But not all of it was positive. Coming up next, a brutal dictator wants a piece of the gold at Busang, launching a desperate struggle for control of Bre-X. Now back to the story. In 1996, x boasted that it sat on the largest gold deposit in the world. Soon, Major companies were knocking down their doors. Within months of announcing the gold discovery, investment management giant Nesbit Burns came on board as a financier, and JP Morgan Company joined the endeavor in an advisory role. Very quickly, BreeX acquired an air of legitimacy. And once analysts enthusiastically promoted the company’s stock, the rush, the frenzy, the wild speculation really kicked into gear. The elite of Canada's financiers, stockbrokers, analysts and investors praised Bree-X with almost religious devotion. They urged their customers to buy BreeX stock, telling them to buy now, buy quickly and buy as much as they could or else risk missing out on a fortune. All the experts who should have known better got carried away, convinced that Bree-Ex had discovered El Dorado. A spokesman for the Barrick Gold Corporation told reporter Richard Behar, if this was the biggest oil discovery, so what? More oil. But gold is different. It brings up more emotions. It clouds the minds of people. Once Brie X became legitimate, once the lie they manufactured, intentionally or not, became truth, everyone bought in. By October of 1995, Briex stock reached $59 a share. In April 1996, Briex moved to the big leagues, the Toronto Stock Exchange, and share prices climbed further to $187. By 1997, their stock had traded at a staggering $286.50 per share. In just three years, the company experienced an unbelievable growth rate of 100,000 percent. At BreX’s peak, the company was valued at $4 billion. The executives at BreX reaped the benefits of that speculation. Felderhof's wife bought him a Lamborghini. Walsh purchased a lavish estate in the Bahamas. But according to Felderhof, they weren't just spending the money on themselves, they were also acting as benevolent benefactors to the locals in Busan. X supposedly spent a million dollars on a social development plan for their Indonesian workers. The company provided electricity, a Christian church and the kindergarten with plans to open a fishery and poultry farm which the locals would run. New homes were thrown up, and the younger villagers received scholarships from Breaks to study geology and engineering in Canada, Indonesia, and the Philippines. Walsh, Felderhof, and Guzman could afford to be generous. They were on top of the world. Virtually overnight they had become titans of the mining industry and the Canadian stock market. But dark monsoon clouds were on the horizon. Ballooning estimates of the deposit had encouraged dizzying stock growth, but they also brought unwanted scrutiny to BRIX. Not from principled market regulators, no, no. Instead, it was the greedy president of Indonesia, Suharto, who took a keen interest in the riches of Busan. Suharto's legacy is a complicated one. Most observers, particularly outside Indonesia, declared him a dictator. During his 32-year rule, he brought stability and economic growth to Indonesia, but his military-backed administration was notoriously brutal and corrupt. Suharto and his family have been accused of siphoning money from government contracts and state charities to say nothing of the state-sanctioned killings which took place under his command. The dictator's wife, Madame Tien, was derisively nicknamed Madame Tien Percent due to the commissions she collected on business deals. Their six children collected as much as $35 billion from various cartels and monopolies. Suharto's corrupt government no doubt contributed to a lack of oversight that allowed the Bree-X scandal to blossom. According to the U4 Anti-Corruption Resource Center, the rational choice theory is a framework for understanding corruption. This theory suggests that corruption is the function of calculating strategic self-interested behavior and is more likely to occur where there is an asymmetrical balance of power. Dictatorships, where power is concentrated in a political strongman and their cronies, are thus fertile breeding grounds for corruption. Perhaps Felderhoff was aware of this when he first whispered rumors of the riches of Busang to David Walsh. But in such a system, it was perhaps inevitable that the reputed gold at Busang would draw the attention of Suharto. Besides basic greed, a successful dictator must always be quick to maintain the power asymmetry which favors him. It wouldn't do to let such wealth slip out of his country without taking his cut. Around 1996, Suharto stepped into the fray and withdrew the Indonesian government's approval to exploit Busang. The official reasoning for the decision was that Bree-X was too small of a company to handle such a large mining operation on its own. The government insisted that Bree-X would need to partner with a larger, more established mining outfit if it wanted to extract the wealth of Busan. Conveniently. Suharto's children were already tied to several major mining companies. Barrick Gold Corporation was one of the companies vying for the forced partnership. It was the second-largest gold mining company in the world and had ties to Suharto's daughter. Barrick also had George H.W. Bush and former Canadian Prime Minister Brian Mulroney on its board of directors. Allegedly. Bush was even encouraged to lobby Suharto on Barrick's behalf. But just in case kowtowing to the dictator failed, Barrick was ready to go to war. It enlisted Kroll Associates, Incorporated, a large corporate investigations firm. In the 80s and early 90s, Kroll had helped recover assets hidden by dictators like Ferdinand Marcos and Saddam Hussein. They even helped Boris Yeltsin's post-Soviet government track down money stolen by the KGB. Barak now enlisted Kroll to probe Bree-X in anticipation of a hostile takeover. Having tangled with multiple despots and secret police, Kroll associates were heavy hitters. And they wasted no time putting pressure on Bree-X. In 1997, David Walsh's Calgary office was broken into. His wife stumbled upon a corporate spy rifling through the garbage at their Bahamas estate. The Bree-X CEO had his hotel room searched for listening devices while advising his employees to shred sensitive paperwork. Busang had become a nest of vipers, a hotbed for intrigue. Bree-X's JP Morgan banker said of the situation, This place is like Casablanca. Initially, Bree-X allied itself with an Indonesian company controlled by Suharto's eldest son, perhaps to forestall a hostile takeover. But Suharto insisted that Bree-X make a deal with Barrick instead. Maybe George H.W. Bush really did convince him that Barrick was the way to go. Or perhaps Suharto thought they could give him a bigger cut. In any case, Barrick was poised to get a majority stake in Busang, while Suharto would receive a 10% kickback. Meanwhile, the delay in mining caused by Suharto's interference didn't put a damper on X fever. Quite the opposite. The Canadian press praised Bree-X as a plucky company swiping up one of the greatest gold strikes of all time out of the hands of a notorious dictator. Walsh and Felderhoff were praised as Robin Hood heroes. It wasn't yet clear that, behind the scenes, Bree-X was desperately trying to compromise with the dictator. A compromise which, inevitably, would include a significant payoff for Suharto. Ultimately, the deal with Barrick collapsed. Like so many twists in the Brex x story, we don't know exactly what happened. But luckily for all involved, a new deal was quickly put together. It was engineered by Suharto's friend and golfing buddy, Mohamed Bob Hassan. Hassan was himself a tycoon and something of a fixer for Suharto. So when the situation at Busan got too messy, Hassan stepped in to clean it up. The American mining company Freeport, McMoran, Copper & Gold, which had been working with the Indonesian government for decades, would run the mine. The Indonesian government would get its share of the profits, of course, while Hassan took a 30% stake of Busang for his troubles. According to the deal, X would maintain a 45% stake. Walsh issued a press release announcing the deal with Suharto and reassuring all concerned that Busang was still worth at least $25 billion. But as it turned out, the partnership with Freeport McMoran proved to be the kiss of death for the Bree-X scam. Within months, the fraud was exposed, the fallout was catastrophic, and in one bizarre incident, Deadly. Thanks for listening to Con Artists. We'll be back next week with part 2 of Bree X. We'll explore how the con unraveled, what its victims lost, and the fates of David Walsh, John Felderhoff, and Michael de Guzman. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Con Artists for free from your phone, desktop or smart speaker. To stream Con Artists on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. I'll see you next time. Con Artist was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Con Artists was written by Devin Hughes, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Alastair Murden.